morning, church. It's good to be with you. Wow, that was nice. Gospel-centered community is what we are as a church. We're a church that gathers around the love and affection of a Savior who would willfully give his life on our behalf. And we are a church that is young and old to do that. How much, and did anybody notice our, uh, my man, Orion, playing the drums, 12 years old today? That's my guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we had Enzo worshiping over here, right? My, my guy, I heard you. Yeah, that's you. And, uh, but we're a, we're a gospel-centered community, and, and we center our lives on the, the love and the sacrifice of our Savior on our behalf, that he, he came for the forgiveness of our sins, that he brought us from death into life. We were blind, and now we've received sight. We are a community that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But see, gospel-centered community, it starts with gospel-centered people. And it's not just a community saying, man, I love my church and how my church focuses on Jesus. The question is about you, right? A gospel-centered community starts with a gospel-centered person. It's not about looking to the left or to the right, but God is asking us, to be community to others. Not what others can be to us, but what we can be to others outwardly. So I want you to look to your left and your right. I just told you to stop doing that. Don't do that. This, this is not what we're doing today, right? And so, so don't look to your left or your right, right? This is about you. This is about you and me focusing on that which matters most in our own lives and outwardly displaying that. And so as we begin this two-week series, Common Unity, that, what, what is it that, that we share in common as, as Christians, as believers, that brings us unity in the faith, young and old? And again, what I'd say is that common unity, I believe, is our Savior, Jesus Christ, who, who came, bled, and died for us. We've been born again, made to be new in him, and the unity that we now have is unity and becoming and being a gospel-centered people, fulfilling all of his purposes in this world for us. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there to 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. There's one in the seat ahead of you. It'll be on the screens as we read it. But if you will, stand with me this morning in reverence, in awe, in honor of God's word. Let's read 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Scripture says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Father, would you help us to understand the depths of this text, of the truth of your word that you communicated to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, today, open our eyes to see all that you'd have us to see, and Lord, use me to whatever end you desire, I ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So this morning, as we look at this text, again, that we, we, have, a, we have a common unity under the banner of Jesus, 
And so the drive of this text, give you a little bit of context what's happening. This is the second time in this letter that Paul is going to tell them to not lose heart. And this is one of the reasons he's writing it. So he's going to say in verse, um, chapter 4, verse 1, so right before this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Right? And so losing heart, this is the big idea. He's driving it home saying that, that there's a way in which you can go about life in which you don't lose heart. And there's a way that you can go about the Christian life in which you don't lose heart. Has anybody in this room ever lost heart? Where you became discouraged, you became dismayed? Well, no one more had a right to than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, and we're going to read about it in a moment, he endured suffering and a hardship. At one point in time, he mentions that he was beaten 39 times, 39 lashes, four times. He traveled back roads and dirt roads and over mountains and over hills. And as he's writing this, he's saying, don't lose heart. And I just can imagine as he goes over some of the hills, he says, my knees, they hurt a little bit more than they used to. The hills are harder to climb. The thoughts of imprisonment and beatings seem overwhelming. But what he says is, do not lose heart. There's a way in which we can go about life where we don't lose heart. And in this text, he's going to reveal how we go about that. Right? So Paul had these, but we have it. I, I, I believe I believe that in this room, if this is just my experience, there's kind of two categories of people. There's the stressed and exhausted. You don't have to raise your hand if that's you. Right? The stressed and exhausted or the bored and unfulfilled. And it seems like we live in a culture that's either kind of one of the two extremes or you're stressed and exhausted yet bored and unfulfilled, right? All at the same time. There's, there's a principle in, in this text that Paul says that, that there's a way to go about life where you don't have to be bored and unfulfilled, nor do you have to be stressed and exhausted, but you can have hope. But there's this shift that has to happen in our thinking. So in this text, there's... Right before this, just a few verses, Paul's going to say this to the Corinthians. I have given my, my body over to death that you might have life. The underpinning of the, how we don't lose heart is if you engage in a life that says, I am going to give up so that others might have. The word would be willful suffering. Not just natural suffering, suffering that's going to come my way, Right? Last I checked, 100 out of 100 people die, right? And we are going to grieve the loss of many of those people in our life. It's going to be hard. People get cancer. This world is decaying at every level. Hardship is coming your way if it hasn't already. You can't escape it. So there's suffering natural to this world. But the principle of the New Testament Christian is not just one of natural suffering and trying to dodge it and weave your way around it. The principle of the New Testament Christian is that I willfully engage in hardship so that others might have life. Jesus said it like this, that he who desires to keep his life, right, will lose it. But he, 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 who, desires, he, he who gives up his life, right, will truly find it. It's about giving up ourselves, our rights to something bigger than ourselves. And I believe this is one of the places in which we find great unity and faith. So Paul says, if you're going to go after life like this, here's how you have to go after it. Now, 
the first, he says you need to focus on inner renewal. So if you're, if you're not going to lose heart, if you're going to go after willfully giving up to have, you must focus on inner renewal. Or way, another way to say it, maybe in a common terms, is get your head on straight, right? Think about what matters most in life. So here's how the text breaks out. So our outer, outer self, though our outer self is wasting away, the shell of our body, our flesh, right, is wasting away. It, it is what belongs to this world. It is temporary. It is crumbling. It is what we, in, in this our world, it's what we evaluate things by. The world operates holistically at this level, at what is seen in front of our eyes. So, you know, simple of this is like this. It is a thing that some people's hairlines are receding, right? And then they have to, you know, put like makeup on it so lights don't shine. Just kidding, I don't do that. But some preachers do and I laugh at them. And uh, <laughs> just saying. And uh, right, there's this outer world. Everything's decaying. It's universal. We know it, right? It, it is true. But what he says is our inner self, right? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Inner self, our, our inner self, this refers to what it has ultimate significance, what transcends this world and lives beyond this world. It is being transformed, our souls. It is being prepared for the resurrected life. And God operates at this level, and this is where God now dwells, if you have trusted in him, in your inner self. So another way, and so, and so it continues and saying it's not only our inner self is being renewed, but when? Day by day. It resembles Jesus' prayer that we just went through. Right? Give us this day, our daily bread. Day by day, he is transforming and renewing my inner man, my inner self. So again, it's like this. Our body is perishing. It's a, the law of deconstruction. Everything in this world, and this is specific to ourselves, our, ourselves are being deconstructed. It's true. Right? Age, simple fact that we will not live forever. Paul specifically, he felt the deconstruction of his own life as he wrote this text. But then he says our inner nature, what it is being renewed. He's speaking of the, the reconstruction of our life, that, our, that there's a reconstruction while our body is being deconstructed. Our inner man is growing more and more in love, more and more into the image of the one in which we love, our Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, again, just prior to this passage, Paul will write, we all now with unveiled faces, beholding the Lord's glory, as we look at him in this life, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. It is a perpetual act in which God is doing. He's changing our inner man, ourselves. He's returning us to holiness. See, there's really like two letters in the New Testament that are fairly harsh. Paul writes them, and one is 1 Corinthians, and the other is the book of Galatians. In 1 Corinthians, there's this passage in which I think for most of you is fairly familiar. So in 1 Corinthians 13, you might have heard it at a wedding. It says this, love is patient, and it is kind, it doesn't envy. And we, we see this young couple on the stage, and they, we, they read it, and we're like, oh, their love is so beautiful so patient, it's kind, their love is perfect and pure. And then if you're jaded and married, you're like, they don't know what's coming their way. Oh man, they think that now. No, so, so, so we, and uh, it's a beautiful text and it is, but 
that passage isn't quite as quaint as we think it is. If Paul kind of verbally punches them in the face, it's that verse. Because the three verses prior to it, he says, everything you're doing, it's a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. You're doing all this stuff, it amounts to nothing. All this stuff, you gain nothing because love is patient, it is kind. You're doing all this work for Jesus, but it isn't for Jesus, it's for you. You're doing all these great things and you have all these great gifts, but you don't wield them for Jesus, you wield them for yourself because because love is, or Jesus is patient. He is kind, he doesn't envy, he doesn't boast. And what Paul says to him in that text is, you don't look anything like Jesus. You are not bearing fruit. What he's saying is you don't have inner renewal happening in your life because you don't bear the image of the one you love. You just perpetuate the image of your flesh into this world and in your relationships. Am I making sense to anybody today? So when we, are, when we focus on inner renewal, what happens well, the character of Christ becomes to be displayed through our lives. He'll say this to the Galatians also, right? Here are the fruits of the flesh, anger, wrath, malice, envy. But the fruits of the spirit are love, joy, peace. They look like the one we love, Jesus. And when we set our eyes on him, when we have inner renewal, what happens? The character of Christ becomes out of our life. The one we love, his compassion, his grace, his mercy, his servant, his care becomes to to flow out of our lives. So how do we do this? How do we come to a place? There's a lot that I could talk about on this, but I think there's three things that have to be present. That They have to be present in order for us to have inner renewal in our hearts and lives. The first is we must be gospel-glorying people. If you are not a gospel-glorying person, I, I, I doubt very much that you will be being transformed in your own heart and life in inner renewal. And gospel glorying looks like this. I am so grateful for my Savior, Jesus Christ, that he would come, that he would bleed, and he would die, and he would forgive me of my sins, that that he would not only die for the forgiveness of my sins, but he was resurrected from the dead, that he's seated on high, that he's alive today, that he lives in me, that he's transforming me. I am overwhelmed by your gospel, and I glorify you every moment of every day of my life because I can't get over what you've done. And if you don't glory in the gospel, if it's old news and not good news to you, Maybe you never really heard the news because the gospel is the greatest news ever and people who are transformed in inner renewal are people who glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just can't quite get over what he's done. The apostle Paul is so redundant in the gospel that as you read his letters, he just goes over and over again just worries that maybe in the last chapter you lost thought. So just let me remind you really quickly of how amazing Jesus is. Gospel glorying, we we have to be in order for inner renewal to happen. We won't look like our Savior if we don't glory in him. Second is we must be God-knowing people. That I desire to know the God who loved me so much that he sent his only son. From Genesis to Revelation, the full revelation of my God, I want to know the aspects of his identity and of who he is and how he's acted and 
what he's done in this world. I want to see his love and his care, how he desires for relationships to work, and how I see that in Abraham and Sarah, and how I see that in Moses and the people of God, and how I see that through the prophets, and I see it through the kings, and I see it in the New Testament, I see it in the Gospels. The fullness of my God revealed to me. I want him more. I desire to be God-knowing. And then last, I believe uh, we must be people who are dependent in our asking. We are dependent in our asking, that we depend on God. And when we wake up in the morning, we, we depend on him in our prayer saying, God, if you don't show up in my life today, everything in my life will be in complete vanity. I need your presence today in the moment to moment as I live. We are not self-sufficient people. As a people of God, we are dependent on our God. Gospel glory and God-knowing, dependent people. I promise if these three things are possessed in your life, you will experience inner renewal in the day-to-day of your life. And there's many more that we could add to that, but if these three, I believe they're absolute imperatives. So the inner life is more than a special time with God in the morning, although that's really important. The inner life is a moment-by-moment trusting God's renewal in our lives so that we might walk around, so that he might walk around in us and with us day to day, using us. And he gives us everything we need when we embrace this reconstruction in a renewal. Colossians 3.10 says it like this, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So what do we do? We get our head on straight and let the significant be the significant in that we might not, don't minimize spiritual things in the inner self. What Paul is saying here, what God is saying to us here is the inner self matters more than anything, more than anything else in this world. Can I get an amen? All right. Felt a little cheap. I asked for it. But uh, uh, second, what he says in the text is expect God's greater reward. Expect God's greater reward. So he says these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so what happens in this text, what Paul does is he uses hyperbole and he's going to use measurements and weight. So he's going to say, what is light and what is heavy? And so seemingly, Paul's afflictions would be what is heavy. Just let me give you a snapshot into his afflictions and you be the, you be the judge if this is heavy or not. So Paul, in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, same book, he's going to talk about his suffering. So he says, not, not to boast, am I talking like a madman? This is verse 23, 11, 23. Am I talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That was actually with rocks. Um, he's a godly guy, right? contextual. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. One on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, air conditioning, uh, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many sleepless night and hunger and thirst often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So in this, this is what is seeming heavy, and I love that text because he ends with, not only do I have all this hardship, but then I got to deal with all you people. Like that was his kind of ending of that text, all the churches. But does that not 
seem overwhelming? I mean, to say that is light and momentary afflictions almost feels wrong to minimize such hardship and pain. But what Paul says is, oh, you want to know what's heavy? These light and momentary afflictions, this isn't what's heavy. What's heavy? What's heavier than anything? It's this, this, this weight of glory that I will see. These, these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for me an, an eternal weight of glory. And then he uses hyperbole to say that it's off the charts beyond all comparison. There's nothing that compares to the the glory that we will receive, the reward that we will have in heaven. And we need to live as people not hoping for God's greater reward in heaven, but knowing that God fulfills his promises. And when we give up all things on his behalf, there's a reward waiting for us in heaven. I don't live in this world for temporary, shoddy rewards that I will receive here, but forever with him when I see him face to face, I will lay many crowns down before him because I loved him and I gave up in this life so that I might have life with him forever. It is a laying down of my life so that others might have life. Again, Paul says, I have given my body over to death that you might have life. He was willing to be afflicted. Earlier in this, at the beginning of the book, he says, I wanted to come to you. And in Asia, we didn't think we were going to because we thought for sure we were dead. This gospel message and these men in whom wrote the pages of scripture, these apostles that God used, these were not just these simple men that did these simple tasks of preaching and these nice kind of events from town to town. These were men that gave their very own lives for the sake of the good news of Jesus. So, Paul, again, light affliction. There was nothing light about his afflictions. They were heavy afflictions. The principle is trials on earth are nothing compared to the glory in heaven. He flips the system. And he says, what is heavy is glory. What is heavy is God, not this earth. So, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said it like this. If we consider the greatness and the glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead, it would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word, if I believe the word, I shall on the last day after the sentence has been pronounced not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonment, but I shall also say, and here, listen to this, Oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ. The the reward of heaven far outweighs our light and momentary afflictions on earth. Ben Stewart, um, part of Breakaway Ministries in Texas, he said this, stop crying and start living at any cost for Christ. So the third, last thing that we see in the text that Paul calls us to is to not, to not only right, focus on inner renewal, not only expect God's greater reward, but last, live for eternal things. Live for eternal things. So this is a, a universal truth that's kind of connected in this text. So the things that are seen, right, they're transient, they're temporary, they're here one moment and gone the next. So Paul says it again like this. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So 
universal truth, again, the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary. Everything is fading, not just us, but this world. And so how this works is we see it all around us. So a home built in the 1850s, what does that home look like today? It's been deconstructed, it's fading, it's falling apart. That sweet 1988 Grand Prix that I had in high school, right? The door fell off in a parking lot, right? (laughs) Rust, right? I had to like get up. I had to, I had to shift it. I had to, I had to, I, I, it was, it was an automatic and I'd put it in second and then I would, I would go to 45 in second. And then if I shifted really fast into drive, it would skip fourth gear and it would go down the interstate, right? Like the car was falling apart. That's nothing about Pontiacs or Grand Prix, but that was that car. And all of us could tell stories about things that we've had that we loved and cherished. It's falling apart. But, but for some reason, We just want to grab onto the things of this world and say, no, no, this isn't fading. No, 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 this really matters. And we hold tightly onto the things of this world. And I I believe that the Apostle Paul knows this about humanity at its core. I believe God knows it about humanity at its core. And that's why God reveals this to us in this passage. Everything is fading. You are fading and this world is fading. And what will you focus on? You and this world or God and the eternal things that matter most. Because we know it's true that material things, value systems, governments, nothing lasts forever in this world. Everything is falling apart and everything is fading. So he says, look to the things that are unseen, the eternal. Don't focus on the things that are seen. Focus on the unseen. So the question bears, what are the unseen things? What are the unseen things that I must set my gaze upon in life? Now, church, I'm just going to ask you a question. Do you believe that the word of God has full authority in your life? So if the word of God has full authority in our life, and we have been commanded in this text to not look to the things that are seen and are fairly clearly convicted at some level that we do that greatly. Anybody with me on this? Okay. And we have been conditioned to do this greatly because everything in our world system says focus on the unseen things. So if this is true, the question of what are the unseen things matters greatly because this is what should matter most to us. And for me, I'll tell you, these are the things I believe that are the unseen things. God. You can't see him. You can't touch him. But he is real and he is present. He is creator and he is author of all things. And God is in three parts. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all three work in unison toward his good and their good and glory together. The unseen things, the fatherhood of God. That you once were not a child. You were a rebel from the ways of God. But in giving yourself to God, you became his child. Scripture says like this, you became one of the beloved that you are loved and you are cherished, you are of worth and you are of value because you are a child of the God on high, the unseen. Not only God, but his son, our savior, Jesus Christ. The one in whom you were a rebel from, who you didn't desire, who you didn't honor, who you, who you, who you were bent against, You were a servant of yourself and your own flesh. But Jesus served you to the degree to die on the cross for your sins. And now you have become a servant of him in everything that you do in life. 
and now in being a servant of him, you, you believe that Jesus has come, lived, and died, and you give your life in service of him in the day-to-day. And then the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, the one who indwells you, who teaches you, who equips you, who moves you and motivates you and mobilizes you for the purposes of God in this world. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the fullness of God affecting the fullness of who we are and shaping us to be children, servants, missionaries in our world. Focus on the things that are unseen, the fullness of God in heaven. And then the second is the souls of men, women, and children. Because no one lives forever, and there will be answer to every person's life on earth. And if people have not turned in repentance and faith to Jesus, they will be separated from God forever and be sent to a place called hell of great punishment and anguish for all time and eternity. Our Father and the souls of every man, woman, and child should matter to us more than anything else. We focus on the seen, on the unseen, not the seen. And when our eyes catch a glimpse of the unseen, right, we begin to move toward these things. And so the question we ask ourselves is, does the unseen matter to you? We look to the things that are unseen. So some say that you become so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. I would say that if you don't become heavenly minded, you will be of no earthly good. So Abraham... The Apostle Paul and Jesus, three characters, and we could use more, have something in common. So they all lived their lives to a watching world against hope. Abraham, there was a promise. And the promise to Abraham was, Abraham, you are going to have a child. And that child from, his, from your descendants will, right, your descendants will be as numerous as stars, but, the, but, but from your child, right, will, will come the Savior, from from, from this lineage will come the Savior. So Abraham lived his life, and to a watching world, as he said that God is going to give me a son, it got a little foolish, right? To the watching world, they said, God's not going to come through, man. <laughs> Seriously. You're 90 years old, bro. I think they said bro back then, right? <laughs> they were like, come on, bro. Like, that's not going to happen. You're far past the age where that stuff happens. And everyone that watched Abraham said he was a fool. You even go before that to Noah. He looked like a fool. He lived his life against hope. And to the watching world, he looked foolish. He lived against hope. Yet he lived his life in hope. Not because of the watching world, but in hope because of what God had said. And he lived in obedience to that. The apostle Paul, he lived his life Against hope. I mean, imagine this, imagine this moment where the Apostle Paul has left Jerusalem and he's been entrusted with this gospel message to take it to the known world. And as he's going out and he's proclaiming this message, he knows that persecutions, that sufferings, that imprisonments are going to happen. And I don't know about you, but if your job is to take the gospel to the known world and you're in prison, that's going to be hard to do. And so somewhere along the line, somebody had to say to the Apostle Paul, hey, Dude, they said that then too. Hey, dude, like I'm not, I'm not sure it's good for you to do that right now because you're going to be in danger. And then if you're in danger, you can't do your mission. So you need to back it off a little bit, dude. 
So to the watching world, Paul lived against hope. Didn't make sense. But Paul also knew that if he didn't suffer for the gospel, those that he was asking to follow Jesus were going to suffer without a doubt for the gospel. And if he didn't model it, then it wouldn't happen. And he didn't know how these things came together. So what did he do? He lived in hope. Trusting that God saw things better than he saw things. That the the things ahead made more sense than they made in his own mind. Jesus. His life really doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? King? He didn't have a house. Rocks were his pillow. Homeless savior. To a watching world, they disregarded him because he didn't look on the outside like a savior, a king might look. In all of Jesus' life, he lived against hope. The watching world, his life was hopeless and foolish and he was going to die a dumb death on a cross that he didn't have to. But Jesus lived his life in hope because he knew that the path that the father had set before him. And he willfully gave himself to suffer and bleed and die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And not only did he suffer and die, but in hope, he knew that going to the grave, that he would be resurrected because the grave would not hold the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus lived in hope in church. The question that this text, I believe, asks us is, do you live your life to a watching world against hope? yet in the depths of your soul that you are living in hope, giving up that others might have. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You might think this is a peculiar sermon on community. You put 400 people in a room that live like that and you'll see a community that turns the world upside down. God is asking each and every one of us not to look to the left or right, but to ask ourselves a question, am I seeking inner renewal in my life? seeking to become more and more and more like the one I love, my Savior, Jesus? Am I living for the shoddy rewards of this world that are fading and being destroyed? Or am I living for the eternal reward that I will receive one day in heaven with my Savior, Jesus Christ? Am I looking to that which is seen or am I looking to the unseen? the eternal things, that which matters most? And am I giving my life to that end or to lesser things? If you'll bow your head, close your eyes. I'm gonna lead us through a brief time of contemplative prayer. And then after I do that, we'll sing a song together to respond to what God has said today. For a moment, as you sit, spend some time with the Lord. Think about these things in which his word has said. Commit to inner renewal. 
to glorying in the gospel, seeking to know God increasingly in your heart and life, dependently calling upon him in prayer and asking day by day. momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Maybe today, freshly surrender your life to God. Commit to give up that others might have. To live for eternity. The reward of heaven not the reward of earth. Commit today to set your eyes on the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the souls of men children. Setting your eyes on that which matters more than anything. It's the Lord to teach you how to look on that which is on the inside rather than the outside. Father, we We need you. We need you to transform our hearts, to renew us. For we recognize that we are wasting away, that this world is fading, and you are all that matters. Renew our souls, transform our lives. Help us to live so selflessly. We live in a way where we we truly see the light and momentary afflictions as they are. And we look at our reward as it is beyond all comparison. Help us to set our eyes on you, Jesus. Help us to know you more deeply, Father. Spirit, fill us. Move through us, empower us, teach us. Give us a passion for those that don't know you and Lord, those that don't today. Lord, I pray that you would help them today to turn from their sin and repentance and place their full confidence in you, Jesus, to save them from their sin. Help us to respond as we sing this song we ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you will stand, let's sing. These altars are open as always. Might we continue to respond to what God has said to us this morning.